This episode of the Officer Don Memorial Podcast is brought to you by our friends at the Law Enforcement Today radio show. Check out the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast, which started as a podcast in 2017. It's a syndicated radio show broadcasting to millions of people every week. Crime and or trauma stories from those that have been there. Hosted by a retired police sergeant. Find the Law Enforcement Today podcast on major podcast platforms or online at letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Sedgwick County, Kansas. It's the second largest county in the state with over 450,000 people calling it home. Its county seat is Wichita, the largest city in Kansas. The county was founded in 1867 and named after John Sedgwick, a major general in the Union Army during the American Civil War. Sedgwick County was also the setting for the murders committed by the BTK Strangler, eventually identified as Park City employee Dennis Rader. Rader was arrested in 2005, but not before killing 10 people in Wichita and Park City and sending taunting letters to police and newspapers detailing his crimes. He's currently serving 10 consecutive life sentences in the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Butler County, Kansas. President Barack Obama was sworn in as our 44th President of the United States, becoming the first African American to hold the office. I, Barack Hussein Obama, I, do Barack, solemnly swear. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. That I will execute the office of President to the United States faithfully. That I will execute the off faithfully the, pres the office of President of the, the United States. The office of President of the United States faithfully. And will to the best of my ability and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. The death of American entertainer Michael Jackson triggers an outpouring of worldwide grief on this year. Reactions to the event cripples several major websites and services as the abundance of people accessing the web addresses pushes internet traffic to unprecedented and historic levels. We're getting some breaking news coming into the situation right now from uh, about Michael Jackson, the king of pop, who's 50 years old. Let's go to Deborah Farrick. She's working the story for us. What are we picking up, Deb? Well, Wolf, here's what we can tell you. This is what's being reported uh, by KTLA. Apparently, Michael Jackson suffered cardiac... And after being struck by a flock of Canadian geese shortly after takeoff, U.S. Airways Flight 1549, piloted by Captain Chelsea B. Sully Sullenberger, 
makes a successful crash landing in the Hudson River. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jim Watkins with a PIX News special report. We are getting word of a U.S. Airways plane crash in the Hudson River. Uh, you're taking a look now at the Hudson River. To give you some perspective here, this shot is coming from the, the year was 2009. Sedgwick County was one of Kansas's many dry counties until the Kansas Constitution was amended in 1986 and voters approved the sale of alcohol by the individual drink with a 30% food requirement, a requirement later removed in 1988. It's also the birthplace of famous restaurants like White Castle and Pizza Hut. The sheriff's office was located in Wichita, and Mark Pierce was a lieutenant for the sheriff's office back then. Wichita's, and this is a rough number, approximately uh, 350,000, so it's a mid-sized city. Uh, Sedgwick County is, again, a rough number, about 450,000 residents. Well, Wichita's is, claim to fame, is the air capital of the world. Well, it was the home of Boeing. They've now pulled all operations, or almost all operations out of, out of Wichita, um, and Spirit is builds a lot of the components for Boeing aircraft. They're still here in town. Huge, huge employer. Beach, Cessna, Learjet, all started in Wichita. A lot of the manufacturing in town is related to aircraft manufacturing, different types of, you know, aircraft maintenance. There's a lot of that in, in Wichita. Uh, there's an agricultural piece to it. All of the surrounding, you know, outside of the city proper, uh, there's a lot of agricultural, just farming. Um, and then Wichita is also home to Coke Industries. Their headquarters is right here in town. All that operation is run from here. So another huge employer uh, in Wichita. The Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office is also a large employer in that community. We have uh, a rough number, about 170 sworn deputies divided between three different uh, divisions, our patrol division, our judicial division, and our investigations division. And then uh, another round, a rough number, about 250 detention deputies that, that manage our detention facility. And then 75 uh, clerical and civilian employees that, that actually probably really run this agency. So the commission deputies were divided between those three different divisions, patrol, judicial, and investigations. And patrol is your normal patrol function. Traffic stops, it's responding to calls for service, working traffic accidents, all of the things that, you know, I think most people expect law enforcement officers to do. That was their role. They were a 24-7 operation. Uh, each shift would have a lieutenant as a watch commander and two sergeants and 16 to 18 deputies, rough number again per shift, assigned to the shift. And then when you throw in days off and trainings and all that, you would probably, on a normal day, somewhere between eight and 12 deputies working at any given time. Uh, and then that was the same for all three shifts. Each shift was an eight and a half, eight and a half hour shift. One of those deputies working day shift was Brian Etheridge. Brian was a brand new deputy. He'd only been on the road on his own for a few months. He was 26 years young and married to his high school sweetheart, 
Sarah. Brian and I met in high school, actually. We both um, were working at a local vet clinic in Derby, Kansas, <laughs> and we both had plans to attend Kansas State University in the fall. Um, this We met oh, late junior year and then worked all of our senior year together, and really were just nothing more but friends. Um, we started dating right before we graduated from high school, knowing that we were both going to you know, attend the same university in Kansas, and we kind of had the same thought we were going to have same career path um that kind of just like you know brought us together and it was never looked never looked back after that both sarah and brian started college with aspirations of being veterinarians and as often is the case with kids and careers both changed their career majors sarah switched to nursing and brian to law enforcement. He had been talking about it, that he thought that maybe he wanted to go into law enforcement um, and Wichita has a great criminal justice program. And so he looked into that and just kind of switched gears and we both came down here together. And so that would have been in 2003 and finished our college careers and both obtained our bachelor's from colleges here in Wichita. In spite of the risks, Sarah supported Brian's decision to go into law enforcement. I knew, you know, of course, that it's a dangerous field, but I was more so just excited for him because I could tell that he was really passionate about it. I could tell that it was something that he really felt like he would enjoy doing um, and he would thrive in. So I, I really encouraged him to continue down that path. After college, Brian had worked a short time at the juvenile detention facility in Sedgwick County before attending a 22-week joint training academy for police officers and sheriff's deputies. He was in a class of seven that graduated on December 12th. They would then head out to work eight weeks of field training with the veteran deputy. It was Monday, September 28th. Deputy Joseph Green, Deputy Bennett, Deputy Smith, and Deputy Brian Etheridge were at a restaurant called Fried Rice on South Glendale near Pawnee and Oliver. This is one of those hole-in-the-wall restaurants on the south side of town that you're probably only going to find after being referred to it by another local. An Asian-Chinese restaurant that had been around about 20 years. Hole-in-the-wall restaurants, they tend to be favorites for cops. They're often less busy than many of the larger chain restaurants, often owned by local folks who, along with their staff, really appreciate law enforcement and their service. As the deputies were just finishing up lunch, dispatch requested Brian respond to a larceny report. It was 11.42 a.m. County 911, what city is your emergency? Um, I just need to fill out a report. Um, my car has been broken into last night. And I discovered it this morning. I just need to fill out a report. They stole my wallet and some other things out of there. What's your address? 3636 South Rock Road. 3636 South Rock Road in Wichita? Yes. And what's the phone number you're calling from? Uh, 683-6475. Six eight three six four seven five. Mm-hmm. Is this a house or an apartment? A house. And what is your name, please? Uh, Fletcher. Lyon. Your first name is Fletcher? Oh, uh, yes, ma'am.
Was your uh, car parked in the drive or in the street? Oh, it's in the driveway. <clears throat> this happened sometime last night? Yeah. Do you have any idea who might have done this? Um, no, I don't. Okay, I'll have to have a sheriff officer come out, uh, 3636 South Rock Road, is that correct? Yes, ma'am. If anything changes, just give us a call back, okay? You said you're going to send um, an officer out? Yeah, sheriff officer. Okay, thank you, ma'am. All right. Mm -hmm. Or Larson Airport, 3636 South Rock Road. Or 3636 South Rock Road, contact Fletcher Lyons, reference flashing auto. Deputy Jeff Smith had been with the Sheriff's Office since the fall of 2001. I, w- I would probably say we were almost done with lunch when the um, when, when Brian received the call. It, it was a um, larceny call. It, you know, he answers he, he, he answers dispatch and, and uh, you know, said that he'd be en route, and uh, we, we finished up lunch real quick, and we were kind of laughing and joking as we're cleaning up, and, you know, he's going to his call. Well, he Brian, Brian leaves, and the, uh, the rest of us, we walk out to our vehicles, and Deputy Green gets in his car. You know, he, he starts it up and gets things rolling, ready to go, and he's, he's getting ready to leave to go to his beat, and we're talking and laughing and joking. Well, he leaves, and then me and the other deputy, Deputy Bennett, are standing there and we're and we're laughing and back back then I smoked cigarettes so we're standing there smoking a cigarette and we're laughing and uh, you know one of the things that I remember is we're standing there in the parking lot and this guy comes driving into the parking lot in this old CJ Jeep with no doors it's got the bikini top on it we look over there and there is a coon dog sitting in the front seat on its on its rear end and it's seat belted in with the shoulder harness and everything. And the dog's just looking at us. Yeah, it was it was the most comical thing ever. So we're sitting there, I mean, we're sitting there and we're laughing. I mean, just hysterically about this because it was so comical. So we're sitting there laughing and we hear, we hear the radio key up. Shortly after arriving on scene, Brian notified dispatch that nobody was answering at the door and he requested the phone number to the complainant so he could call and let them know that he was on scene. For dispatch. Go ahead. Do you have a public service for the CP? I'm not going to answer here at the house. Then, Bart, do you want me to call him or do you want the number? Uh, just give me the number. 683 At noon, after Brian had been given the phone number, a garbled transmission was heard over the radio. We hear the radio key up, and and we hear muffled sound. And, and, you know, I associated that with, it's kind of hard to describe, but we wear, um, well, back then we wore, the only uniform we had to wear was French blue pants with kind of a, almost like a Smurf blue shirt. And it's polyester. So if you were in a foot chase and you were trying to key up the, our old lapel mics on the old Motorola radios would scratch across that polyester and you would get the sound of that polyester 
so that's what I associated that with. And then immediately after that, dispatch is keys up on the radio, and the question she asked, I believe, was for checking. Four, checking. Where's he at? We had decided that we were going to start heading that way, you know, just to, just in case. Because, I mean, I, I associated it with a foot chase is what I associated it with. So we, we get in our cars and we start heading that way. Um, I, I mean, it wasn't, it, it was no time at all when dispatch alerted um, the officer in trouble tone. So y'all. Uh, officer in trouble, 3636 South Rock Road, operate sheriff. Dispatch 4 checking. We, we were en route with our emergency equipment activated. We get to Pawnee and Woodlawn, and dispatch asks again uh, for checking, and, and Brian comes up on the radio. And, uh, <clears throat> he says, four have been shot. Hurry. Four have been shot. Hurry. All officers have an officer down 36, 36 Rock Road. And to be perfectly honest with you at that point I didn't think of anything else but to get to him you know I still had in my mind that he was that maybe he had stopped the car on the way to this larceny report and that, that he had gotten into a foot chase that's what I thought uh, because I associated that sound of the polyester with uh, a foot pursuit the next major intersection from Woodlawn East there is, is Rock Road so now, now we're two miles into it and, and then you go south, it, it's about another mile and a half south. So we were about about three miles, three and a half miles away from where he was. And uh, that was the longest drive of my life, that, that three and a half miles. When Deputy Green arrived on scene, he saw Brian's squad car parked on the south side of the residence in the driveway, and he pulled in directly behind it. Green couldn't see Brian. He exited his squad. He drew his handgun, and then he ran to the back of the house. We both pull into the driveway about the same time. We, we run around the uh, towards the back of the house, and as we, we step around the southeast corner of the, of the house, we, we see Brian laying on, on the ground. He's next to a, uh, a blue or greenish, um, I think it was a Chrysler 300, um, he's laying next to the driver's side the front wheel. Uh, the back of the house is probably 10, maybe 15 feet away. So we, we, we run to him and start rendering aid. We're talking to him. He's able to talk to us. One of us asked him where, where the shooter was. He said he didn't know, but he has my gun. So one of the things that, that I was worried about, and, and Deputy Green the same way, is removing Brian from the danger zone. By now, multiple officers from multiple agencies are responding and arriving. Mike Littleton was a detective for the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office, and he was on duty that day. We had had some calls 
back earlier in my career. And the weirdest thing, and not a lot of people know this, because like I said, I haven't spoke about it. Um, I was driving past that house about a week before this happened. And I was like, man, I wonder whatever happened to that guy that lived there that we used to always have problems with and always deal, you know, have to deal with him. And a week later, that call came out. It was right around lunchtime, and my phone was acting up, and I was at the Verizon store that was probably maybe, maybe three miles from that location on Rock Road. It was a straight shot to where it happened, from where I was. And the Verizon store, um, it had a glass front. So I'm in there talking to the guy. I had left my, and I was on, I was working. I was on um, lunch, and I left my radio in the car. And that store is just right off of Rock Road. And I'm in the store talking to the guy, and next thing I know, I've seen these, what you call police cars, three of them, buzzed by, um, like, super fast. I mean, the kind of fast that's not like, oh, the kind of fast that got my attention to, like, nobody drives that fast during this time of day. Something's wrong. So I told the assistant, I said, hold on for a second. I ran out to my car and grabbed my radio, and I turned my radio on and went back into the store, and I didn't hear anything right away. And maybe about a minute later, I start hearing traffic on the radio. Morning traffic number four, ten nine your traffic. Four if you can get out, checking. Twenty traffic number four. Four if you can get out, checking. And I'm like, uh, something's not right. And then I get a address. Uh, officer in trouble thirty six thirty six South Rock Road, operate sheriff. I'm like, man, I'm right here. So I bust out of the store, call my um, sergeant, and say, hey, man, I don't know what's going on. And he starts explaining to me what's happened. And I was heading there to where I was heading towards the scene. And he was like, "Um, I need you to stop and turn around and go to the hospital. So there was Wichita police officers there. There was other deputies there. There was, I think, Highway Patrol was there. Of course, it's an officer in trouble call, so anybody that's close is going to respond. So the other guys are covering off the house, the windows of the residence, things like that, because we don't know where this guy is. And, and what we assumed, I think, initially was that he was still inside the house. So uh, me and a uh, WPD officer, Wichita police officer, who was on scene, moved Brian from that area over to a, a little in between some trees that was uh we had cover from our vehicle sitting in the driveway all three vehicles were sitting there so we had good cover um and by that time by the time we got him moved there was law enforcement everywhere so we pretty much stayed right there with brian i i know i did for a fact and, and i know that green did but once we got him over there i, I was i i opened his shirt up and uh, was trying to find uh, you know assess the the wounds i was able to get his get his shirt off get his vest unvelcroed and uh i i i saw a a wound in his in his abdomen it was at the time i didn't i didn't realize that that was an exit 
because he was shot in the back. So I could see the wound. I could see blood. One of the things I reverted back to was it, it wasn't too long prior to that when we were introduced to quick clot. We were trained on quick clot and uh, we had received quick clot and each vehicle was equipped with quick clot. So immediately that's what I thought of. So I run back to my car and grab my first aid kit that has the quick clot in it, get back over there and, and uh, I, I pull this quick clot out, rip the package open and as I open it, it it's a sponge. And, and I don't know, I don't know what to do with it. You know, I, I, I'm reverting back to the training. I was never in the military, so my, my introduction to quick clot was what I received from the sheriff's office. So in the training videos we were showed, it was in powder form. So you just tore the top, dumped the powder into the open wound. So, I, I, I mean, in a panic, I, I, I pulled this off. I don't know what this is. Um, I'm able to get my knife out and, and I cut this sponge open and I start dumping these pellets. They were, pe- they were pellets, you know, I start dumping them into the wound and I'm compressing them. And, uh, and you know, I'm trying to reassure Brian, it's, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You know? And I mean, he's, uh, I mean, the first initial contact with that quick lot, I mean, he just, he lets out a scream that, you know, I, I mean, it's just a, uh, that's a scream that, you know, almost 13 years later, I still hear. So, I mean, we do everything we can. I mean, there's there's some kind of delay uh, with the ambulance. We're not sure what, what's going on, but we're, we're getting pretty upset because we need to get him to the hospital. You know, that's, that's all we know. We need to get him medical treatment now. We were doing everything that we could possibly do for him right there. And, I mean, I'm not medically trained. I don't know... You know, back then, they didn't teach combat medical and things like that. But it's incidents like this that ramped up that training. I found out later that the ambulance was delayed because the scene wasn't secure, so they couldn't make it into the scene. It, it was it was quite frustrating. So we finally get Brian in the ambulance. We, we carry him to the ambulance. They get him up in there, and, uh, I mean, we, we remain on scene at, at that point. You know, we were we were assigned to take up a, a, a post on the perimeter. Majority of us were assigned uh, M4 rifles, and uh, that's what we had. You know, M4 rifles up on post uh, on the perimeter because at that time everybody believed that the the suspect was inside the residence. We weren't on the perimeter for probably ten minutes until they pulled myself and, and Deputy Green off the perimeter and took us upstairs to our investigations for uh, debriefing. The EMS report indicated it took officers only four minutes from the time they arrived to get Brian to the ambulance, and they transported him to Wesley Medical Center. When notifying a spouse that their husband or wife has been shot and injured like Brian had been, Most agencies will work to make sure that notification is done by someone in administration, someone who's accompanied by a chaplain and maybe another fellow officer. With everything happening so fast and unexpectedly during this incident, that just wasn't the case with Sarah's notification. Sarah is notified when one of her close friends calls her because this this friend's husband had heard that an officer had been shot. Over the, on the media, 
Sarah, Sarah at, the, at the time was working, uh, was, a, was a third shift uh, nurse working in labor and delivery at Wesley Hospital here in Wichita. So she was home in bed. She was, Brian was working, she was home in bed. We had a home phone and we used it, you know. <laughs> and I think it was my home phone that rang first and woke me up and I sat up in bed, answered the phone. And I remember even thinking then, like, who's, everyone knows I'm sleeping. Who's calling me in the middle of the day, you know? Um, it was a friend from work, a, a coworker at Wesley Medical Center, another nurse. And she had received a phone call from her husband. She had also been sleeping. And was given the information that a Sedgwick County Sheriff's deputy was shot on Rock Road. Well, she knew that Brian and I talked every morning because by the time that I was leaving work and driving home, he was already out of squad. He'd already, you know, been assigned his beat, knew where he was going to be. And so that was usually, you know, we'd always touch base then. And he kind of let me know because he wasn't assigned a, a specific beat at the time. And so she knew that I always knew where he was. And she told me, she said, you know, never in a million years would I have thought that I would have been the first person that voiced this to you, that let you know that the event had even happened. She said, I fully expected to call you, have you answer the phone and say, it wasn't him and, and give me the, give her the story basically. And so when, when she realized that I hadn't talked to him and I didn't know anything about it, she changed her verbiage a little bit. She said that she had heard that a cop in Wichita had been shot. I think she didn't want to alarm me too much, you know, with specifics, I guess. I was worried right off the bat, of course. Um, Brian and I had always, well, I mean, as much as we could have a plan, like you said, we were so new. We hadn't really developed any kind of routine. But he had always told me that, you know, if anything happens, um, and I can call you, because this is, we didn't even have text messaging plans on our phone back then. And so he said, you know, if I can, if something ever happens, if I can call you, I will, I'll do my best to call you, even if it's just to say, I'm okay, and hang up the phone. The fact that I hadn't gotten a call from him, you know, I was, I was a little worried. I tried to call him right away, and of course, got no answer, which made me a little bit even more concerned. But my initial thought was, well, maybe he's there. Maybe he's helping. Maybe he's in the middle of, you know, Wichita is pretty, even between the Wichita Police Department and Sedgwick County Sheriff's Department, they work so well together that I knew that if anything had happened during the day, any any type of law enforcement would have responded and, and helped with the situation. So I was hopeful that that's why I couldn't get a hold of him. Shortly after I got off the phone with my friend, I had a phone call on my cell phone and that was from a uh, Wichita police officer that had been in the academy in Brian's class, so but graduated on the PD side of things. And I guess we didn't know that at the time, but we were very fortunate. We were a very, they were a very close-knit class that was back when they still did all of their training at the same place between the sheriff's department and the police department. And we all really just hit it off from the beginning and would go out to dinner together, go out and get drinks, you know, go boating. I mean, we did, we did all kinds of stuff on our day. And also you have to learn to adapt to people, other people that have Tuesdays and Wednesdays off, you know, because that's not normal. <laughs> so we were good friends um, and I was good friends with this female officer, but she wasn't somebody that ever picked up the phone and called me, you know, I mean, especially during the day. So 
that right there made me even a little bit more alarmed um, when I noticed, when I realized it was her. And again, very same similar situation. She told me that she had been woken up. She was a night shifter, had been woken up by a dispatcher um, who had let her know that it was Brian that had been shot and that he was being taken to Wesley. And she said, you know, had I had I been awake enough to stop and think about it, I, I would have paused but she goes I just called you because I expected you to to tell me I'm with him this is what's happening and be able to give her the story when she realized that I didn't know she she changed her conversation really quickly too um I remember she asked me like what are you doing and I said well I'm at home and I said is there what's going on like is there something going on and she goes why do you ask and I said well I just had a call from a friend and she told me that a cop in Wichita has been shot and I can't get a hold of Brian and it was this part of the conversation with her where I I knew that things were were not good and she just told me she said Sarah I need you to stay at home I'm coming to your house right now and I need you to I need you to call the sheriff's department she didn't want to be the one to say it was him so I told her okay. I got off the phone. I remember getting out of bed at that point, walking into our kitchen and letting our dogs out out in the backyard. And I stood there in the kitchen for a little bit and I looked at the fridge and I guess that, you know, takes me back to a time when I was young and that's where you find the emergency phone numbers. (laughs) And as I was sitting in the kitchen, I realized I have no idea who to call. I didn't have his supervisor's phone number. I didn't have a phone number for any deputy that he worked with. Since he went to day shift, he wasn't friends with any of those people, you know, prior to. And I knew I knew a lot of people out of his class, but all of those people worked second and third shift. And and I and I realized too that I didn't um, I didn't have a number for um, the squad room. Not that that would have mattered because there wasn't anybody there at that point. But I just I didn't have any contact information. So I called my friend back, the female police officer, and I said, I don't know who to call. I don't have any phone numbers. Please tell me. Like, do you know was it him? And she said, Yes, it was. It was Brian. She said he was shot in the chest. There's an exit wound in the back. He's being taken to Wesley. And which was a little bit of inaccurate information, but that's what she had been told. And I remember thinking at that point, I just sat down on the floor in the kitchen and I remember thinking that he was already gone. I thought for sure that he was, I think I asked her, is he alive? She didn't know. Um, And I thought they know that he's gone. They just don't want to tell me over the phone because I do remember her continuing to say, there's police officers on the way to your house. Just stay there. Just stay there. Another department of the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office that was deployed to this incident was their forensics investigations team. Today, it was forensics investigators Mandy Bruno and Tiffany Moreland. Mandy was the senior investigator. She had been with the Sheriff's Office for 13 years, initially a deputy on the road prior to moving into forensics. The two of them were back working in their office when they were advised of the shooting. They came back and said, hey, there's two deputies that got shot. And I'm like... Okay. And I immediately, I'm a work mode person. So as soon as I hear whatever call it is, I go straight into work mode. I'm not, I'm non-emotional. I have nothing, uh, the carrot, my cousin always calls it like the carrot in front of the rabbit and I'm straight for it. And so I told Tiffany, I said, Hey, come on, you're going to hop in with me. We'll go together, grab your camera. And I had her grab, uh, you know, like a scale or something. And so our vehicles are loaded down with the supplies that we need to do just about any scene. 
so we get out and we start driving and as we're driving I realize we don't know which hospital he's going to because we have three hospitals in Wichita and so we're literally you know amped up I'm amped up on adrenaline and uh, trying to figure out which where I need to go and so we're driving around waiting for them to tell us where he's going to go and at this point we think there's two people shot so they end up uh, telling us Wesley so we go to Wesley and I'm and I doing what I normally do with people that are newer uh, I'm going like kind of going through the checklist I'm like okay you take the guy on the right I'll take the guy on the left uh, take pictures I want you to do this this is what the ER is going to look like um, and I'm saying I'm telling her you know get your camera have your scale you need a bat we need bags and I'm going through all the things that you need to get like I was like a bag for shoes a bag for socks a bag for pants a bag for you know shirt vest underwear uh, radio uh, need a box with a gun if they you know I'm not knowing what is going to be there I'm just going through everything that needs to equipment wise we need to have because you don't want to get stuck in the hospital and need something that you have to go get so uh, we're running through everything and uh, we get there and we go in we're in there and realize wait a second there's only one guy so I had told her to go down his left side and I went down his right side and so it's very chaotic in the ER when that situation is occurring and so you need to get what you can get because you don't know where the, the victim the patient's going to go and so um, I'm trying to take the pictures that I can take while not getting in the in the way of the doctors or the nurses and so we're taking these pictures of him and he was in a lot of pain and uh, he was uh, uh, he, he was he was making noises because um, he was in pain. Jonathan Murray lived just up the street from where Richard lived with his grandparents Fletcher and Lee Lyon at the house at thirty six thirty six South Rock Road. Jonathan was Richard's cousin. He said he heard two gunshots, but thought it was probably just Richard hunting, which he would do from time to time, hunting rabbits or squirrels or sometimes deer. Murray also told detectives that Richard had told him for the past four months or so, Richard had been having dreams that were coming true. Richard told him that about two weeks earlier, he had a dream that he got into a shootout with police and killed two officers before they killed him. Murray said Richard told him he believed this dream was going to come true, so he told Murray that if anything were to happen, to make sure he got away from Richard so he wouldn't get hurt. Unfortunately, this was only reported to law enforcement after Brian was shot. Lieutenant Pierce was on the SWAT team that day. So myself and the other lieutenant, like I said, we were both uh, we were both on the SWAT team. We immediately started gearing up. We'd already called for a SWAT activation, and one of our newest members from the SWAT team had also arrived about the same time. So I just start. He's like, "Hey, what do I need to do?" And I'm just like, first thing, get these fire truck and firemen away from the scene." 
get them back out of this danger area. And then we just started sitting at the perimeter, trying to find out, gather as much intelligence as we could, what was going on. We had several uniform officers from multiple agencies that were around this house already. And I was specifically communicating with one one of our deputies who was on the back side of the residence and said that there had been a window blind in the in an upper window that he had saw, and it was the old style roll-up blinds, just the vinyl roll-up. And he said, I saw that blind go up somebody's in that room somebody's in that upper level so we pretty quickly started setting up a perimeter with the SWAT team as they arrived around that particular house initial intel was that the folks that lived there was an elderly couple and their car was there at the scene and we were told by family if if that car is there they are in the house they never leave that car so now we have a concern that we have a potential hostage situation inside the house. And and we knew pretty quickly when this all started breaking loose that the caller that placed the initial phone call lied about who he was. He gave a name, he gave the name and identified himself as his grandfather. One of our deputies, he had been at that residence in the past and he ended up in a pretty good fight with a younger guy that lived in the house and he pretty quickly identified, hey, if, if that's happening at that house, and he identified who our, who our prime suspect was. Turns out he was correct. But at this point, we still believe now that our suspect may be in the house with his grandparents, and he's either harmed them or he has them hostage. So at that point, we're just trying to kind of slow things down a little bit to get a, get a perimeter set, get every all the resources in there. We've got the entire mile section now. So it's Rock Road on the west side. It's Web Road on the east side. On the north side, it's 31st Street South, and on the south side, it's 39th Street South. So we've got a full mile section that we've now surrounded. And the majority of that is farmland. But on each one of those roads I mentioned, there's a house or two, small little neighborhoods. uh, And I'm going to estimate we ended up with in excess of 300 officers from multiple agencies that were on that perimeter surrounding this entire mile section. ATF, Kansas Highway Patrol, Mulvane PD, Derby PD, Wichita PD, Bel Air PD, all of our small town agencies, all of the, the Kansas Bureau investigation, Kansas troopers were there. I mean, uh, we, we had some representatives from the McConnell Air Force Base that came over to offer assistance, whatever, whatever we might need. So it was a huge, huge effort. We had members from the KBI SWAT team then that, that joined us, the KHPs. My SRT team, they joined us, some of the group from the Derby Police Department SWAT team. So it was it was truly a, a huge effort. Uh, but initially, it was set up a perimeter, get the get the officers that, that were on the perimeter initially, get them moved back to a safer location, and then SWAT began taking over that, that perimeter. The Wichita Police Department Air Unit also responded and assisted with the perimeter from the air. Unfortunately, due to the thickness of some of the vegetation in the fields, as well as several thick tree rows, the view from both the air and ground were obstructed in many areas inside this perimeter. The rifle that Richard had used to shoot Deputy Etheridge was found at the scene. It had apparently malfunctioned as the two of them struggled. But officers believed that Richard was still armed with at least Brian's 9mm duty weapon. 
A duffel bag was also found in a location in the backyard of the residence. It appeared to be the spot where Richard had been waiting for Brian and other officers. The bag contained a Bible, some clothing, a large knife, and additional rounds for the rifle. Around 4 o'clock that afternoon, tear gas was deployed into the house. It was an attempt to get Richard to come out and surrender. SWAT also tried unsuccessfully to get their robot into the house. One of the things that, that occurred on this, because of the number of law enforcement officers on scene, we ended up splitting the operation onto two radio channels. And those that were part of the outer perimeter and were on one channel. And those that were on the inner perimeter, primarily the SWAT units that were in the inner perimeter, were on a second channel. And there wasn't, it, it doesn't seem like we had great communication back and forth from our command post between what the two different units or elements were doing. But we didn't realize really anything was going on on the inner perimeter. We were still concentrating on the residence. We were actually starting to get prepared to, to uh, we, we'd, we'd done things all day. There'd been, you know, multiple attempts to make contact through the phone, there'd been multiple attempts through uh, PA systems, and with no luck, there'd been no information. At some point during the day, we learned that the family, the grandparents, weren't in the residence. They had actually been picked up by another relative and for doctor's appointments. So, yeah, so we, that quickly, you know, kind of changed our folks a little bit. We now were pretty convinced that if he was in the residence, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a hostage situation any longer. That there had been attempts that at that time the Wichita bomb unit had a had a robot that had camera. We tried to get that in the door, and it was it was just a mess. I mean, we spent an hour trying to get this thing in the door to get an idea what was going on inside the residence, and we went through a process where they could take the wheels off, and it, it, it was just I mean a true. It just didn't work. It really, you know, I mean, I, I understand the reasons behind it. It all makes sense. In the end, it ended up being a very frustrating process to try and get this darn thing up this ramp. And, and the back door of the residence, and it was actually the primary way the family went in and out of the residence. The, there was a, a wheelchair ramp that they used, uh, and they didn't use the front door. It didn't look like really anything. And the, and the back door, the main door was standing open, and the screen door was propped open with a paint can, which, again, kind of led us to believe that maybe he is in the house, maybe this is another attempt to get to, for him to lure us into the house, things like that. So, even, and even that, the robot is just trying to get in, knock the paint can free, and then the door slammed shut, and we couldn't, the robot couldn't get the door back. Well, it was just a, it was a frustrating, uh, for those of us that were there, but so we we didn't realize anything was happening at that point uh, until we started hearing gunshots out in this field a little bit to the north and east of us. And we one of us switched over to this radio channel, and we learned then that the McConnell Air Force Base had given us a couple of armored Humvees that we were using to drive out in this field, looking looking to make sure he wasn't out there in the field. The three officers in the bed of this Humvee included 32-year-old Special Agent Michael Jones from the ATF. Michael had actually just hit his 10-year anniversary the day before this incident, and he was working in their Wichita office that day when they heard there was an officer-involved shooting. Officer-involved shooting, suspect in the wind, they kind of told us where it was, and that, you know, all available law enforcement was basically setting up a perimeter uh, on these mile roads. It was kind of southeast of the city. At the time, we weren't assigned patrol rifles, but we had three or four of them available for the office. So we grabbed a couple rifles and, you know, we all started headed that way. 
in our cars and got on the radio kind of waiting for instructions from our boss who basically said go find a spot on the perimeter and you know post up there so me and doug Monty, who was a senior agent in the office he and steve garrott who uh, he was a local cop and then an ice agent and then uh, came over to us a couple years after i hired on the three of us found a spot on a road and you know stood there behind our cars looking at a, an empty field for a long time mike butler who is a kansas highway patrol he was there also with his like brand new patrol rifle that had just gotten issued to him so we just kind of naturally started talking to butler and uh, kind of hung out for the afternoon at some point during the day they set up a command post at an intersection where like the west side of the intersection was the entrance to uh, uh, mcconnell air force base so at like two or three in the afternoon or something some dude from the air force base you know walked out to the command post and said hey we can't drive these for you but here's all these humvees if you want them and just gave a bunch of keys to humvees to the command post so wichita had um they call them scat units which was they were basically like uniform drug units one for each like precinct in the city and there's you know northeast south and west so they put the scat units in these you know desert camouflage armored humvees and started sending them out into this you know mile square fielded area looking for this guy later in the afternoon criminals in wichita figured out that there weren't any cops on the street and um dispatch was getting their asses handed to them with, with calls one of the police department captains who got you know put in charge of the perimeter coming around and sending uh the pd uniform people back to the street to run to handle calls and as he's coming by he sees us with our rifles and says you guys have the tools once you get to the command post and we'll get you into one of these Humvees and get you, you know, in the fight. So me and Steve and Doug and Mike Butler go to the command post. And that's it. Just, just me and Steve had rifles. Doug didn't have one, but Mike Butler did. So we go to the command post and it said, uh, you know, they, they found us a Humvee. It was like a, 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 it looked like a leftover OD green with a soft top on it. And it was like an empty, like pickup truck bed. I'm like, here's the last one we have. And, uh, like, really? <laughs> All right. So Doug, the senior guy in our office, uh, he was kind of like the rock we put our back to when, you know, stuff was going sideways. He's just like one of those guys who just knows, he knows the, the way the uh, ATF wants the job done and also knows the right way to do the job and knows how to walk that line. So we made him drive. He got a, like a crash course and how to use the Humvee. So, and then we, we piled up. We all piled into like the cab, and the three of us couldn't really see out of it very well. So we're like, eh, screw this. So we got up into the like the bed up in the back of the Humvee and like rolled the, the back window of the soft top down so we could communicate with Doug. And we we're kind of on the north side of the perimeter, you know, waiting for, they said, uh, give us a minute. So during all this, the PD and county SWAT team was attacking the, the bad guy's residence. And they were supposed to be doing like an explosive breach right at five o'clock. So we're kind of sitting there. We hear, uh, I remember hearing taps play over the base housing PA system. And we were seeing like some other Humvees like riding around. And like, what are we waiting for? Let's just get going. So we drove south into this field, kind of followed a, a dry creek bed, like to a tree row. So we were passing under like these uh, really like broad but low hanging tree branches. To the point where we, we had to like duck down like the branches were like rubbing across the roof of the humvee and as we were going on the street saw the suspect's legs like his blue jeans on the south side of this tree and kind of like smacked the top of the humvee to get doug's attention 
and it's like as soon as Doug stopped, we all heard a gunshot. Memory is weird. Like uh, I don't I don't know how other people have like experienced this stuff, but like for me, like I don't have like my brain obviously isn't processing in HD. I, I have like I have like snapshots. So I remember seeing Steve proned out out the back of the Humvee with his rifle pointed towards the passenger side of the Humvee, which is where I was seated. Um, heard a gunshot, and I think all of us assumed that it was one of us that fired at him. And then we heard, you know, he's running. You know, so he took off southbound, and we're on the north side of the tree row. So uh, we all bailed out of the Humvee and went running off after him. It was like prairie grass. It was, it was probably up to the middle of our chest. We chased him probably 7,500 yards uh, before uh, he uh, like sort of turned as he was running and fired at us. So that's one of the like snapshots that's like still uh, very clear to me. Um, initially, I, got, I think I was around 50 or 60 yards from him. Uh, Mike Butler was to my right a little ways. He was a little bit further back, and then Steve was uh, even further to the right of, of Butler, and I think he was close to 70-something yards. Yeah, but I'm still like, 50 yards from him. So he fires at us. We stop running and engage him, and he goes down in the grass. And we can't see him because the prairie grass is, you know, chest high. So we kind of start trying to communicate with each other. Doug is coming up behind us also, but doesn't have a rifle. So he, you know, doesn't engage with his pistol. So we we advance up towards where we last saw him a little bit. And then he pops up again, and we're around 40 yards from him, fires at us a third time. And uh, we return fire again, and, and uh, he, uh, he goes down. And I think we all kind of knew he was down for good because uh, we advanced up on him a little more briskly. And like right as we were coming up on him, one of the um, stat teams in uh, the armored Humvees came up on us. Like I remember, as I like I'm seeing, you know, the uh, suspect down in the in the grass. I like I've become aware of the presence of all these other cops around me. I, and actually, like the, I think the guy just to my left is a cop that I knew and had worked with a little bit. So I'm like, I, like I remember being like, "Where the hell were you guys? Or where, where did you guys come from? And why did you get here sooner?" You know. <laughs> so we maintained a tactical L on him for what seemed like forever, um, and then uh, I think another tactical team came up on us, and somebody gave the instruction that they were going to go hands on and, and secure him, and and what, you know once he was in handcuffs, then we could sort of back down. And, yeah. We. Uh, we hit him, I think, seven or eight times. A lot of them, we were, we were firing two, two, three, or five, five, six rounds. We hit him seven or eight times, uh, most of them through and through, but they did pull three slugs out of the suspect's chest cavity, and they matched two of them to Steve's rifle and one of them to mine. As with many of the others who have helped tell the story, you can really hear the emotion in his voice as he describes the incident. Over a decade later, after being forced to shoot someone to take a life, even though he did it to save his own, even though it was the man that ambushed and shot Brian, this incident still makes him emotional. 
TV dramas like CSI and like Law and Order. They show officers getting into shootings and continuing with their day and chasing down the next bad guy. Well, that's just not real life. Regardless of what the mainstream media would like you to believe or what some politicians would like you to believe, cops, they're just human. Cops are just like you and me. And when you're involved in a traumatic incident like this, it has a lasting effect on you. So, uh, well, the, um, but there are several ways it affected me. The first most easiest to describe is there was a significant uptick, <laughs> significant uptick in my alcohol consumption. <laughs> I think uh, a big way that it affected me, um, like I'd, I'd always taken, you know, firearms and tactical training seriously. Uh, you know, um, before this, um, just, you know, uh, always sort of curious, like, what if, if I got into this, you know, situation, uh, what it would be like and how I, how I would react going back to, you know, how this has affected me. I mean, I, like, obviously you can tell it's, there's, there's still emotion there. I, I'm an, I'm an introvert, uh, probably haven't dealt with that emotion uh, as best as I should, uh, just because I, I, that's, you know, what we do, put it in a jar, stick a lid on it, you know, push it down. Um, so yeah, yeah, I can tell obviously it still affects me emotionally. And a lot of that is, I don't know, it's hard to say whether it's the, like the actual experience itself or just the emotion involved in the aftermath of it, but, you know, because it was, you know, the result of a, a fallen officer. Throughout the day, all indications from officers on scene and from the medical staff that was treating Brian was that Brian would need surgery, but would likely survive his shooting. That was the initial reports that we were getting. Uh, The deputies that were at the scene, they all said he was able to talk to them. He was able to give them information on the suspect. He he was talking uh, all the way to those in the ambulance with him. One of the WPD officers first arrived on the scene was a was a former Army combat medic, and Brian had been shot twice. The first was with the thirty thirty right thirty thirty rifle that was in the back, and then after Brian was shot, the the suspect moved up on him, and they fought over Brian's handgun, and ultimately. Brian lost that fight, and he shot Brian through the bottom of his foot. We believe as Brian is trying to kick at him. And so the PD officer that was there in the ambulance, he was working on Brian's wound to his foot while EMS was working on the, on the, the more critical wound uh, that was on Brian's back. So as Brian was going into surgery, he was, he was adamant with the anesthesiologist that you have to call my wife. And Brian wouldn't was not cooperating with the anesthesiologist that was trying to put him to sleep. So finally, this anesthesiologist wrote Sarah's phone number down in the scrubs and said, look, I've got it right here. The second you're asleep, I'll call her. It was around 12, 1230-ish, somewhere in that area when Brian arrived at Wesley Hospital. When the um, female police officer came, I remember she said, um, "Show me who she was," and she said, "I can, I can take you to the hospital, but I can't, I can't turn on my lights and sirens. Um, do you want to go with me, or do you want to wait here? There's, there's sheriff's deputies coming." And at that point, I was not staying at home any longer. Um, I, you know, I'm like, "Just let's go." And so we got in the car, and as we were pulling out of the neighborhood, we saw a sheriff's car, and she pulled over, and it was this sergeant that was trying to find our address. What we learn later in all of this is that when 
Brian's home information was entered into our database. Brian lived on a street that was Custer, but in Wichita, there's a Custer Street, a Custer Avenue, a Custer Court, a Custer Circle, all of those things, right? So we, and all we had was Custer. So we're trying to run down all of these different, and, and those Custers would have the same, so you could have a 5500 Custer Street, a 5500 Custer Avenue, 5500 Custer Circle. So he's running through all those trying to find, get to the right one. So that caused another delay. Um, but ultimately, he does get her to the hospital. Again, sadly, just after Brian was wheeled through on his way to the, to the emergency room. And at that point, he was still awake, conscious, and was able to talk. So Sarah had missed him by just a few minutes of, of getting there to see him. I got in the car with him. I'd never met him before. But this is this is one of the you know first feelings of comfort if you even want to call it that that I felt because I remember looking over and seeing his name tag and I at least recognized his name I'd heard Brian talk about him and you know that made me feel a little bit better I thought okay now we can you know finally I'm gonna I'm gonna get some information and I asked him I remember that on the way there you know just the tense ride of you know driving so fast and I'm sure you know being a law enforcement officer nobody moves out of the way and it's you know it's it's just it's difficult yeah and at that point I really had time to to kind of stop and think and I remember I asked um the sergeant I said okay what happened like was this a car stop what you know I think that was the first thought that I had in my mind like how did this go down what exactly you know went on he didn't have any information about what was going on at the time. And he's, he's like, Sarah, I just came from home. I don't know. When we got to the hospital, we just pulled up in the ER part and the, you know, the ER entrance. And I think I'd left my purse in the door wide open and just walked right in. And I saw um, two officers. One, one was a deputy, the one that had graduated in the top of Brian's class. So he was a, definitely a familiar face. And his girlfriend, who was a Wichita police officer, all, all out of the same class, all out of Brian's class. And when I saw Justin, he was in plain clothes, but he had a radio. And I remember just feeling really comforted by that fact that I saw a familiar face and that he had a radio. Maybe he would, you know, be able to tell me what the heck happened, what was going on. And I do remember he said, um, as I walked in, you know, he's like, oh, Sarah, you, you just missed him. They just took him to surgery. So, you know, perhaps had I driven myself there or had things, you know, gone a little differently with being able to locate me easier, maybe I would have been able to see him. He was awake. He was alert. He was conscious. Um, I struggled with that for a really long time. I still do on some level, but I... I have to tell myself that that just wasn't, that wasn't in the plan that day. You know, for whatever reason, the last time that we talked was we talked on the phone and it was a normal conversation and he told me I love you and, you know, we said goodbye like we always did and that was, that was the, last, the last conversation we had and that's how it was meant to be, obviously. Sarah didn't know it at the time, but one person did get a chance to talk to Brian before he went into surgery. There's other officers that are in there in the ER, and, you know, some of them are, they had some of his stuff. They had uh, his, uh, I can't remember, like a radio, and um, I'm not sure what else, that were on a different table over there. So went over there, and I'm taking pictures of that, too. And I'm standing there, and I'm looking at him, and he looks over at me, and his... uh, his right hand, uh, index finger and his middle finger, he beckons. He kind of moves his fingers, like, come here. 
kind of beckons me to him, and I I, I came over there and uh, uh, I held his hand and I told him, I said, I am so proud of you. You did everything that you were supposed to do. You did a good job. And uh, pretty soon after they shot him up with something, he went out. And they wheeled him out, and they they told us that he was going to be okay. As he, he goes up to wherever they're going to do surgery, I follow him up there. I believe Tiffany went with me. I, I honestly don't remember. And I don't remember what floor it was on. I remember none of that. But I saw his wife, uh, Sarah, who I had never met before, or at least not to my recollection. And I told her, hey, he's going to be okay. I think he's going to be okay. And uh, I really, uh, I struggled with that for years and years because they you know you're told not to do that and I didn't I I wasn't you know I don't know they told me he was going to be okay and I really I felt awful I mean for years I struggled with that and I was just like you know I lied to her and I mean obviously not intentionally but I I didn't know Detective Littleton had also been there with Mandy and Brian. When Brian was wheeled up to surgery, Detective Littleton headed back to his office to keep working on paperwork for this case. I went back to the office. I had my radio on, and I'm sitting there doing paperwork, and I'm listening to the radio. At this time, like, the the SWAT's out there. They got some bees out in the field, and like I said, it's like two miles from my house, too. They had literally that whole um, mile section. Um, and I'm listening, and I hear one of the KBI guys say, we, we see him. And then I hear one guy um, say, I see him in the field, and he's running, and he's, um, you know, shots fired. He's shooting at us, shots fired. And suspect down. And I get in my, I run and out of the courthouse, get back into my car, and I head back to the hospital. So they bring him into the same room that Brian was in, in the same. It was the same room, but Brian wasn't there. So um, they're working on him, and I'm standing there watching. You know, then they pronounce him. I go back to the, um, go back to the um, office, and I'm doing paperwork and then I get a um, get a notification that Brian had passed away and I just literally broke down at my desk because I'm like what the dude said he was you know out of the woods I mean I'm not out of the woods but stable and man uh, that just devastated me after they took Brian to surgery all Sarah could do was wait you know everybody that had been in the trauma bay with him was very optimistic. Everybody was like, Sarah, he's he's talking, he's, you know, he's with it, he's giving us information, he's giving us good information, he's worried about you. He kept saying, somebody call my wife because he was probably thinking she's going to kill me. <laughs> and it does make me feel really good to know that, you know, he was, he was worried about me and Natalie, but 
so, you know, at that point in time, he's in surgery and they take myself and these other deputies and, you know, close friends and family that had made it there up to like a surgery waiting room. And we waited for several hours, even throughout the entire, you know, first couple of hours of surgery. I think things looked very optimistic. And at that point in time, I started to, you know, gain more information about what had happened, that he had been shot in the back, you know, with a rifle and that he had also had his duty weapon taken from him and had been shot in the foot with his duty weapon and that the, you know, uh, suspect was still at large and had Brian's gun. Um, They didn't know where he was. That was concerning off and on, uh, but I, I do, I specifically remember being in the bathroom with one of my friends and I kept saying like, he's going to be fine, right? And she was like, yes, he's going to be fine. He was, he was, you know, he was talking when he got here. He was, you know, everything's going to be okay. And I remember we kind of joked about having to probably get him a bell when he, you know, (laughs) came home for recovery so he could summon me from the couch and, you know, but we really thought that things were, things were looking well and that, you know, things were going to go well. And it was probably close to, I don't, between three and four o'clock, maybe, well, probably closer to three, um, that the trauma surgeon came in and we had already gotten an update from like an assisting uh, resident earlier, but the head trauma surgeon came in and I knew enough to know that like, this is, this is the guy that's operating on him right now, you know? So he's, he's stopped doing what he's doing to come in and talk to me and he just, basically just you know shot it straight which it was really hard to hear but I'm really thankful for the information that he gave and he you know definitely prepared us in a way um, that we weren't expecting at all prior to that Uh, I remember he came in and he knew he knew that I was a nurse he knew I worked at Wesley and he definitely used terms I think that that he was trying to let me know how serious things were he said Sarah things don't look good he said he's he's lost a lot of blood we can't keep his blood pressure up. We can't keep his temperature up. We can't stop the bleeding. Um, and there's a really good chance that he's he's going to die. And he goes, you need you need to pray. And things definitely just completely took a turn from that moment on. He said, I'm going to move you out into the surgery hallway, basically, that was on the way to ICU. And he said, if I can get him stable enough, I'm going to move him to, to SICU. I'm not even going to be able to stop the bed. Like, you're not going to be able to see him, but I'm going to let you wait in the hallway with just, you know, like your closest family, just pick a couple people. And that way, if we if we can get him moved, you'll at least be able to, to see him go by. So we went to the hallway, um, and I remember it being myself, my mom and dad, Brian's mom and dad, his uh, sister, and... Uh, and our priest and, and a couple other deputies that were really close friends of his. And we were waiting there when I'm, I'm not exactly sure what time he came out. Um, they worked on him for quite a while, even after they pronounced it. But he he came out, you know, sometime after 4.30 and just, just told us that he didn't make it. At 4.20 p.m. on Monday, September 28th, Brian was pronounced dead at the Wesley Medical Center Emergency Department about four hours after he was shot. Brian's killer died two hours later. Sarah and Natalie would stay at Sarah's parents' place that night, and she now had to tell Natalie, Brian's two-year-old daughter, that he was gone. 
After my mom had, you know, been had been on the phone with me, um, she had a good friend come and pick Natalie up and took her back to her house. She had little girls too. And I remember they were gonna bring her back home. And she, I, I told her that night, I remember she came walking in and she had, she looked like a bag lady. She had like a princess crown on and like all these, all this jewelry on her arms and she was wearing somebody else's pajamas, you know, and her hair was still wet from her bath. And um, I remember vaguely telling her that Brian had died and she was a very, she's a very, very smart girl, very, um, very verbal from, I mean, she was talking in full conversations at that point. Um, she knew, but I think she was still just so, you know, caught, caught off guard by the fact that, oh, we're spending the night at grandma and grandpa's and mom's spending the night here too. And this is great, you know? And I mean, I remember telling her, but I don't remember, um, much after that or, or that night other than I just didn't sleep. Both Detective Littleton and forensics investigator Mandy Bruno attended Brian's autopsy. Certainly not because they wanted to. It was because it was their job. It was their job to be there. It was their job to document everything for their case for Brian. The autopsy revealed that Brian was killed by a bullet fired by a 3030 rifle. This was the bullet that was recovered from the inside of the front panel of Brian's ballistics vest. The bullet had penetrated the back panel of his vest. It had traveled through his abdominal area and had caused massive internal injury and exited out his lower left chest area. Brian also had a gunshot wound to his right foot. This shot was determined to have entered the bottom of his foot and traveled through his foot and boot and then struck him in the right upper chest area. That bullet was stopped by his ballistic vest and was recovered at the scene of the shooting. The trajectory of that bullet indicated the shot had been fired at Brian as he was lying on his back and had raised his leg in an attempt to block the shot from being fired directly into his body. Brian also had injuries to his facial area that appeared to be from blunt force trauma. Brian did everything right with this incident. It was a priority for larceny call. He responded to take report and to help the reporter of the larceny. He had no idea that Richard was there waiting for him. Had no idea he would get shot in the back and then have to fight for his gun with the shooter and later fight for his life. His actions fighting back with Richard, in doing so, it certainly saved the lives of the next responding deputies, like Deputy Smith, like Deputy Green, who Richard would certainly have shot and killed if he had the opportunity. Other than the piece where Sarah called the dispatch, trying to get information, our, our dispatch center on that on that day was phenomenal, truly phenomenal. I mean. Just couldn't, have, just couldn't have asked for a more professional group of, of responders and, you know, dispatchers that took care of the responders. It was, it was just, they were really phenomenal. So, you know, we, we did a really large uh, critical debrief after the fact and some of the dispatchers involved in that were there. And, and you never, I never really, up until that point, really paid attention or thought much about secondary trauma. 
until we heard them speak at that debrief. It was eye-opening for me to realize what they're going through, that they're there. They're the ones that are doing all of the communication and keeping track and you know, taking phone calls and all of this. And then, and then often, and not, not in this case, but often, then they just don't know what happens. Because now they're on the call, the officers are on scene, the calling party hangs up, and they never know what happens on these calls, you know? And they go to the next one. As if this incident wasn't stressful enough, the Sedgwick County dispatchers then took a very stressful threats call right after this incident. Sedgwick County 911, what's the city emergency then? With the child, I want to report a homicide on the WPD. You punk ass cop and killed my brother, I swear to you. What happened? I said, you punk ass cop and killed my brother, I swear there's going to be another one of you bitches to die. I promise you that. I promise you that. So won't you come find me right now? Come find me. And I'll put a hollow tip in one of you faggots. Sedgwick County 911, what's city in your emergency in? Mr. Child, Location? The location? I'm on hydraulic in MacArthur. You better send as many police as you can. As soon as they start pulling up, I swear on my brother that you just killed, I'm start, I'm shooting. I got a two, two, three, and I got a four, five with a 32 extended clip. Won't y'all come talk to me? Come talk to me right now. About what, sir? What's going on? Y'all just killed my motherfucking brother. You punk ass crackers. I hate all of y'all. I'm on, I'm finna be at the quick shop, so send them, as many as you can, come send them to me. And I promise, as soon as they start pulling up, I promise I'm start shooting. I promise you that. Sir, I'm there's glad, no call I'm, for that. What I'm, is your name? I'm glad one of y'all died. I'm glad. I'm happy that pussy died. It should have been his wife and his fucking kids. Yeah. Come, come holler at me. I promise you. Sir, come what is your name? Come talk to me. What's no, your what's name? your name, bitch? What's your name? I'm what's your name? Two, six, five. Well, yeah, send them to me. Come send them to me. Come send them to me. Come send them to me. I'm at Quick Shop on MacArthur and Hydraulic right now. Okay. Send them the trash can. Send them to me, and I promise I'm shooting. I promise you. And if you think I'm playing, try me. Send them to me. Send them to me. Are you going to be near a vehicle? Don't, don't worry. Right, hey, just when you hear them gunshots ringing, you don't know who it is. Are you going to be alone? I'm going to be alone with 172 bullets with me, ready to get let loose. Bring them to me. I promise you. I give you my right hand to Jesus Christ. Whoever pulls up first in the police car, I'm shooting. What type of vehicle are you going to be there? I'm going to find you, you stupid bitch. I promise. I'm going to find you. Uh, that's an individual that uh, knew the suspect in this case. Uh, I, I remember correctly, he maybe had, had at one time dated one of the suspect's sisters or something along those lines. And he started making phone calls to 911 and trying to get our officers in to confront him. And he was ready for, for us. And, you know, he's telling us what he had for a weapon. And uh, ultimately, he was taken into custody. And eventually, he was charged federal because he was a, he was a felon. And one of the ATF agents that took over, adopted that piece of the case was a former Sedgwick County Sheriff's deputy who took those threats to law enforcement here 
personally when involved, especially when it involved the loss of life of one of you know his former agencies and deputies. So he that that ended up doing uh, some federal time for for those threats he'd made and being in violation of his probation status. But ultimately he he didn't harm anybody else. There was no matter of fact. I don't think he was even where he said he was when he was trying to lure us in. We we found him a day or two later at a residence and he was arrested without any further incident. An estimated 2,000 mourners, including law enforcement from several states, packed St. Peter Catholic Church in Schulte for Brian's funeral. In the waters of baptism, Brian died with Christ and rose with him to new life. May he now share with him eternal glory. A lot of it is kind of a blur to me, and I don't only remember parts of it. And I remember her standing out there um, at the cemetery and just, you know, they have, have us all line up and, you know, have us salute. And I just remember crying. I was standing there, and I didn't, didn't like crying when I was in uniform because at the time, you know, to me, crying is weakness, and uh, I don't like that. And so I remember standing there crying, and uh, that was just, you know, tough. Outside, hundreds of members of the Patriot Guard posted at the church holding the United States flag in honor of Brian. Many students from the St. Peter Catholic School also stood outside in front of the Patriot Guards, also with flags, also to honor Brian. I do recall many things from the funeral, just um, the sheer amount of people that were there uh, was huge. And I just remember, you know, driving into the cemetery where he was buried after the funeral. And along, even on our way there, along the route, several people were, were standing outside of their cars with American flags and their hearts, hands on their hearts, on their chest. And that was just very, I mean, it was very, very humbling, very surreal, um, but very beautiful at the same time. They had hung up, you know, a giant flag from ladder trucks of fire trucks for us to drive under. And I just remember it was just looked like law enforcement as far as I could see everywhere I looked. Um, I do remember one of the cool things that stands out as well is they had all of their working dogs lined up um, with their badges around their necks. And, and I remember just thinking, like, oh, Brian would have loved that. He would have thought that looked so cool, you know, because they were all just, like, perfectly still and, you know, perfectly spaced out and beautiful dogs. So, yeah, it was it was really a neat, I mean, they really, they they did a wonderful job. Hundreds of officers stood at attention at Rest Haven Cemetery on Friday for Brian's last call. Attention all units, stand by for the final call, honoring Deputy Brian Etheridge. Attention all units, this will be the last call for Sedgwick County Sheriff's Deputy Brian S. Etheridge, who bravely served our community from July 2008 until his final call.
September the 28th, 2009. Please observe a moment of silence for one of our own. Rest in peace, Brian. Dispatch concluding, 1252. Deputy Brian Etheridge was the seventh deputy to die in the line of duty at the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office. He was the 298th officer to die in the line of duty in Kansas back in 2009 and was one of 146 officers who died in the line of duty across the United States that year. After Brian's death, it was only a few months before Sarah went back to Mark at the Sheriff's Office asking what could she do to help? What could she do to make a difference? What could she do to help keep Brian's memory alive? This would have been in 2010, um, before class was getting ready to graduate, that I approached Mark and I said, you know, is there anything I can do? Like, is there anything I can do to help? And I did, I, I remember I, I, you know, helped buy them some extra um, plates to go in their vest, the sheriff's deputy class from that year. And, you know, just some things that I felt like I could do to give back. And I, I wanted to do something that made a difference and I wanted to do something that would stick with people and there were things that I really felt passionate about and that I felt like could help people in the future. You know, like basically, I mean, it, it's, it's simple, easy information, but just that reminder of like double check your information, double check your, you know, your forms and, you know, that everything's on file as it should be and spelled correctly and have those tough conversations. You know, you should talk. You, in this job, unfortunately, you know, you really need to have those end-of-life discussions. You need to know what your wishes are for funeral planning, for, you know, burial planning. But thankfully, Brian's family and I never had any issues of the sort, but I had I had seen, I had, you know, become friends with people all over the United States and had seen families just so, you know, it was just awful that they were ripped apart over something as, as simple as like, well, whether he was going to, you know, their officer was going to be cremated or buried. And I thought, you know, if there's anything I can do to just like, 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 let's help these people prepare for the worst so that it hopefully never happens. And so I approached Mark and at the, at the time that when Brian graduated, they were watching some really old videos on VHS. Again, that shows you how long ago this was. And I thought, there's, there's got to be something a little bit better. So we just gave it a shot and we thought, okay, well, I'm just going to go talk about my experiences and, you know, what, what I went through before, during, and after and things that helped, things that didn't help. And it seemed to have really taken off right from the start and people appreciated it. And, you know, for a while, I've even, even still to this day, I've done it so many times, but I thought like, do they really want to see my face? Do they really want to hear my story? This is, you know having to sit down in front of them and tell them like the worst case scenario but that's not that's not my intention you know that's my my intention is to just help keep his story alive and keep him more than just a picture on the wall the academy and also just to give those little you know little bits of of advice that um could have made things go a lot differently you know maybe i would have been able to see him those types of things sarah just came to me one day and she's like I need to do something. Uh, and by this time now, I'd been promoted from sergeant to lieutenant. I'd done 11 months on patrol as a supervisor. And now I was back at our training academy as our training commander. 
So Sarah came. He's like, I, I just can't let this be for nothing. I, I, you know, I, I've got to do something. What What can I do? How can I help? So we just started brainstorming, and and, and I said, let Let's just do it. Let's go tell what happened to the next recruit class and their families. And we just kind of went on a limb and just and just tried it. And like I said, all of the all of the deputies, you know, they're like, that was really powerful and a really hard message to listen to. But please make sure the next class gets that same message. And, and we and you know, Sarah talks about the the thing with dispatch. She talks about the wait to get to the hospital and you know all of those things. She talks about how she was ushered out of the hospital through a back hallway for some odd, strange reason, and later learned it's because the suspect had just been brought in with his family. She later learned that she knew the suspect. They'd gone to grade school together. A couple of days later, I was in the car with Brian's mom, and she turned around, kind of just out of nowhere, and she's like, "I've been meaning to ask you." She's like, "I can't." Like she's like. Did you did you know him? Like, do you remember him? And I was like, who are you, what are you talking about? And she said RJ. And when she said RJ, then it clicked because I obviously I didn't recognize his face. I mean, the last time I had seen him was middle school, so you know, but more than a, de- a decade ago, um, I know for a fact that he didn't recognize Brian. Brian didn't recognize him. Brian would have said something. You know, I mean, that wasn't yeah, it wasn't an issue at all. But he did go to um, middle school with us, and I rode the bus with him because he was bused in from from Wichita and I I remember him being quiet and I remember him being in a lot of trouble and he didn't graduate with us he ended up going to the alternative school I'm not sure if he even actually graduated from there but just even having the I and I do have his like I have his signature in my middle school yearbook Brian was a son a husband a father and a friend to many Brian was a young 26-year-old officer, just a few months into his career on the road. He'd been married for three short years, and he and his wife had a beautiful two-year-old daughter, Natalie, that he just adored. A daughter who would never have memories of her father. He was absolutely a wonderful family man. I think that he was probably a little bit more excited than I was even when I found out that we were going to have a baby. <laughs> but um, we knew we wanted children. We just, I thought, I thought we'd wait a little bit longer. But he was, he was so excited when he found out he was going to be a dad. And even from the moment that he found out that she was a girl, um, I mean, he, he was just head over heels before she even got here. And he was very much a man's man. He loved hunting, fishing, being outdoors, all of those types of hobbies. But, you know, he would just take her right along with him. I mean, he never took her hunting with him, but he would come back with his geese and he would lay them all out in the garage. And I thought it was absolutely disgusting. And, you know, she'd just get right out there with him and (laughs) help him clean birds. And, you know, so he really found ways to just, even though she was so little, just incorporate, you know, her into anything that, that he could. The thing that, that that I remember most about him was his smile. I was like, he's always smiling, you know. And it just it was just one of them things. Like I couldn't tell you. I never went on a call with him. I never supervised him. You know, I was a detective. So other than seeing him when they came through um, for their um, training for detectives, you know, when they come in and do their little observations. That's probably the most time I ever spent with him, but I just remembered his smile. Brian quickly earned the reputation because when when Brian did say something, it was often a very quick-witted, short, 
statement that just stuck over the tracks and it was this, this guy was funny his classmates nicknamed him the silent assassin because they'd just be quiet there'd be nothing and all of a sudden boom he'd come up with one of these one-liners and uh that nickname had carried him from the academy until he, when he went out on a patrol or, or as a deputy so uh so that i mean that's who brian was always a, a good guy from from the very beginning i mean he was um if you had questions he would ask them if you needed help with something he was there to help you you know so I mean, just an all-around, yeah, good guy. I mean, he liked to joke and play around as well. Uh, you know, we referred to him as the uh, silent assassin. We we would we would sit in there and we'd laugh and joke in the squad room. And and, and uh, you, you know, I mean, Brian didn't jump in there all the time, but usually when he did, I mean, it was a zinger. It was uh, <laughs> it just come out of the, out of left field, and you know, it was like you didn't have a response to it. You know, you just kind of laughed it off and <laughs> went on about your day. The Sedgwick County Law Enforcement Memorial is located at the northeast corner of the Wichita City Hall at Central and Main Streets in downtown Wichita, Kansas. It was dedicated in August of 2011 and is one of the most unique law enforcement memorials in the country. The memorial not only displays the names and badges of their fallen heroes, like Brian, but it also displays their boots. In many cases, the actual bronzed duty boots worn by the officers who were lost in the line of duty. Brian's boots, with the bullet hole, are displayed there at the memorial under his name and badge. A chilling reminder of the risks that the men and women of law enforcement take every day they walk out their doors and leave their families to serve our communities. They are our true heroes. Please take a few minutes to visit our website at www.officerdownmemorialpodcast.com. There you can see pictures from this amazing memorial, along with pictures of Brian, pictures of the crime scene, and some incredibly moving pictures from the funeral and from the cemetery. Deputy Brian Etheridge is recognized each year in May at the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office, the Kansas Law Enforcement Memorial, and during Police Week at the National Law Enforcement Memorial in Washington, D.C. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening.